Hey, good morning. How's everyone doing? Uh, if you will, let's, uh, let's get started. Uh, take your Bibles and let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11. As we continue our study through the book of 1 Corinthians, we'll be looking at verses 17 to the end of the chapter, verse 34. Uh, let me read these verses to you and then we'll get started, okay? So Paul writes here, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it, for there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death, Till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak. Sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come." So there you have it, the passage that we are going to look at this morning. Now, just before we get started, of course, as I like to usually do, is a, a little recap, kind of getting us uh, situated where we are. Again, I know this is probably, you've probably heard this many times, but we are in this second section of Paul's letter to the first Corinthians. Corinthians, the, the first letter to the Corinthian church can be largely... Um, divided in two large parts. Uh, the first part, which encompasses chapters 1 through 6, deals with uh, issues that are raised in a report that is sent to Paul from the household of Chloe. Chapters 7 through the end of the book, primarily, or mostly to the end of the book, at least up through the first part of chapter 16, are uh, questions that the Corinthian church 
had raised with Paul and sent to Paul by letter, in which Paul is now responding to the questions as he has received them. So we are in that second part of the letter. And in that second part of the letter, of course, we dealt with issues regarding marriage and divorce and singleness. They had questions over those things. Uh, We dealt with issues regarding Christian liberty and things offered to idols. And we looked at those. That was a longer section, chapters 8, 9, and 10. And then when we come to chapter 11, really chapter 11, verse 2, again, you've got that unfortunate break there. Uh, between verses 1 and verse 2. It's debatable where verse 1 of chapter 11 fits. Does it end the previous section or does it begin chapter 11? Uh, we, we opted for the former, that it ends chapter 10. But what we have here, starting in, we'll just say, starting in chapter 11, and really going on through chapter 14, are issues surrounding public worship, issues surrounding What goes on in the church when the church is gathered together for worship? And the first section we looked at, we took a couple of weeks to look at that, verses 2 through 16 of chapter 11, in which we looked at the the, uh, topic of head coverings. Now, of course, a lot of these things that we're seeing here in the Corinthian letter are how these issues manifested themselves to that church back in that day. But we're more interested, for our understanding, the principles behind that. So like in the, you know, again, just going back, uh, verses 8 through 10, the, the circumstance there was things offered to idols. Now, we don't, we don't do that anymore, right? We don't, we don't worship in you know, pagan temples in the same context that they did back in Corinth in the first century. But the principle that was sort of being discussed there are the issues of liberty. And how do, how do I exercise my liberty in a situation with a brother who has a weaker conscience? And Paul laid out some principles for that. And, and, we, and the principle, of course, is that we need to be willing and able to sacrifice and forego our liberty for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of winning others to Christ, and for the sake of our weaker brother. Now, the same thing happens here, you know, when we looked at the passage we just looked at previously in chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, the, the circumstance is head coverings. Now, typically, though there are some that still practice it, typically head coverings are not an issue in the 21st century Christian church, particularly here in North America. Again, there are some traditions that hold to that, some people who have... Uh, an issue on conscience over it, so they'll still practice it. There's, there's still an entire denomination, a very small one, but still an entire denomination that practices it. There are those that try to get us to go back to the practice of head coverings, but the principle underneath it really revolves around the idea of sub, uh, submission to authority within the context of public worship in particular as it pertains to wives submitting to their husbands. And we saw the principle laid out in verse 3 of chapter 11. If you'll look back there, uh, where Paul writes, I want, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman, or you could say the head of a wife, is her husband, or the head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. So Paul, to lay out the principle to the Corinthians regarding submission and authority in the church, lays out a principle that is sort of baked into the cake of creation. 
And that is, there's a pecking order. That is, you have God the Father, God the Son, man, woman. Now, again, I know I'm going over old ground here, but again, it's not to say that, you know, that there is a, you know, a, a superiority or inferiority in the, in the Trinity between the Father and the Son, just as there's no superiority or inferiority between the man and the woman. We are, men and women are both equally human. We are both equally in the image of God, but there are different functions and roles. Similarly, the Father and the Son are both uh, divine in essence. They both equally share in the divine essence. They are ontologically equal, but there is a difference in functions and roles. The Father is the one who sends the Son. The Son does not send the Father. Same thing with the husband and the wife. So you get, Paul gives you the principle, and he gives you the what he wants to see in the church. For this reason, verse 10, for this reason the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So a woman is to submit to her husband in the church. When she prays or prophesies, however that submission looks, in that a day and age, it was a head covering, however that situation, however that submission looks in, in our context, that's what we have to do. In particular, Paul is very uh, keen to make sure that we keep gender roles also very specific. He doesn't want men looking like women, women looking like men. So that's really just a brief recap of the previous section. Uh, he ends that section by saying in verse 16, look, if anyone seems contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. It's just our practice. This is the practice in the church of God, that there is, a, there is a, an order of submission. And wives are to submit to their husbands, not only in the home, but also in the public worship setting. Which now brings us to our passage this morning. And I don't pretend... At least, I don't think we will get through it, uh, but we'll see how far we get. Um, we did read the whole passage through verse 34, and we'll see how far we get. But he's now looking at another subject. He's beginning to look at another subject in regard to the practice of public worship in the church. This time, as it pertains to the practice or the observance of the Lord's Supper, or the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, or communion. Now, again, whereas before, in verse 2, he commends them, that he praises them for keeping the traditions that, they had delivered, that he had delivered to them, here we see at the beginning of this passage, he does not praise them. And really what we're going to see here is not so much how they practiced the Lord's Supper, but how they practiced the sort of what they call the fellowship meal, or the love feast that led up to the Lord's Supper. We'll look at that a little bit more closely. But again, as we've seen before throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians, the Corinthian church was not so much in fault in regards to doctrine. They were pretty doctrinally sound. I mean, you can make an argument in chapter 15 whether or not uh, they had some aberrant views on the, on the resurrection, but for the most part, the church was pretty doctrinally sound. Uh, just going back to chapter 1, where Paul praises the church in the opening of the letter in verses 4 through 9, he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in every way by him, in everything by him, I should say, in all utterance, in all knowledge, 
So just stop there for a moment. He's praising God for the Corinthian church, not only that they were enriched in everything by Him in all utterance or speaking, in speech, but also in all knowledge. They were a very gifted church. They had many gifted speakers in the church. And we've gone through, we've talked about this, how the Corinthian uh, context uh, showed how they were probably very well uh, equipped in rhetoric and things like that based on the culture. So they were very gifted in speaking, but also gifted in knowledge. Verse 6, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. So the, the words, the 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 bearing witness of Christ was confirmed in them so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So they were a gifted church. They were a knowledgeable church. They had great gifts in speaking and knowledge and, and again, doctrinally sound. Probably very doctrinally sound. Problem was their practice. <laughs> their practice was out of whack everywhere in the book, right? I mean, he begins right after that praise in chapter 1, for, when he goes from transitions from uh, chapter 1, verse 9 to chapter 1, verse 10. Then he says, Now I hear that there are divisions among you. So their practice in the church was, was faulty, not their doctrine. Right? So the church, we saw, we've looked at it, right? 16 chapters in the book. We're only in chapter 11. And think about all the things that Paul has brought up so far that are problems in the church. They had divisions. They had factions. They had schisms. Dividing over popular teachers, whether they followed Apollos or Peter or Paul. They had issues regarding sexual immorality and the fact that they sort of uh, tolerated sin in the church rather than enacting church discipline. They did not enact church discipline. And we see that discipline, uh, the fact that they did not enact church discipline, which is a mark of the church, they didn't do it in regards to the man who was having sexual uh, relations with his father's wife. They didn't enact discipline when they allowed people to take their uh, problems before uh, civil law courts. So instead of dealing with the issues within the church, they, they let believers... Members of the church take their, in a sense, take their dirty laundry and air it in the public courts. They didn't discipline people when they went out to engage in the temple prostitution either, where they were having sex with prostitutes. So discipline was very lax in the church. Then we see it even in the other sections. In chapter 7, they... You know, you had people more than likely divorcing their wives when people came to Christ. If their, if their wives or their husbands were not believers, they would separate from their, their spouses. Uh, all kinds of things. You know, we saw it in chapters 8, 9, and 10, how they uh, engaged in uh, practice that was very close to essentially communing with devils. How they practiced in pagan idolatry. And here, again, you have it here in the Lord's Supper. So they were a messed up church. They are a messed up church you know, in, in practice. Which is really good. It's, in a way, you know, this tells us that we have a letter like this in the Bible. It really does tell us how, how poignant this letter is. And how, even though we may not face the exact problems they faced here, what we see here is a blueprint, in a way, of how to deal with a lot of issues within the church. 
how to deal with divisions, how to deal with how you practice the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, issues in marriage, very practical issues, Christian liberty, discipline in the church. Now, we may not be as messed up in the church here in Emmanuel than they are here, but you know, think about it. The church is made up of what? People. And people are what? They're sinners, right? So anytime you get a group of people together, you're going to have issues and problems. Now, thankfully, again, our church does not have the level of problems that we see here in Corinth. But again, a letter like Corinth is very instructive, even for the church in the 21st century. So as we get into this passage, and we really need to dig in or we're never going to get finished, uh, as we dig into this passage, we're going to see the, uh, the, their practice in the Lord's Supper and how what they were doing was, in a sense, profaning the Lord's Supper. And Paul is very quick to make sure that they uh, stop doing what they're doing there. So let us look here. We're going to see this in, in four parts, um, at least as far as we'll get this morning. But the, the section I, I divided into four parts, you've got uh, conduct at the Lord's Supper in verses 17 through 22, the institution of the Lord's Supper in verses 23 to 26, the discernment of the Lord's Supper in verses 27 to 32, and the actual celebration of the Lord's Supper in verses 33 and 34. So let's begin without any further ado. Conduct at the Lord's Supper. Please look again at verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. So again, we drew the the contrast here and uh, what we saw earlier in verse 2 where Paul says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So there, he, he praises the church for keeping the traditions, and we looked at that word. Essentially, in other words, keeping to the doctrine, the apostolic doctrine that was delivered to them. And we have that apostolic doctrine now preserved in the pages of Scripture here. But now, when it comes to the practice of the Lord's Supper, Paul is saying, look, in giving these instructions, and what I'm about to tell you, I do not praise you. Here again, you are not praiseworthy in this area. And why aren't they praiseworthy? He says, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now again, that idea of coming together there in verse 17, the idea of Coming together, that is suner menon. It's, it's the idea of when you come together, when you gather together, this is, this is what clues us in that we're talking about corporate worship. Now again, when they, they didn't gather in buildings like we have today, right? And even, even small startup churches have a space they often rent out, uh, at least in North America they do, where they can meet. But back in these days, the church had no buildings, they had no property, so they would meet in the homes of people. And depending on the size of the church, you probably needed to meet in a person's home who was particularly wealthy, who would have the space to be able to host a large gathering like this. So he says, when you come together, though it is not for the better, but for the worse. What a stinging rebuke that is, <laughs> Right? The, the church, when you gather together for the church, it is supposed to be for the edification of the saints, for the building up of the saints, for the sanctification of the saints. 
We gather together to build up one another in love and good works. We come together to receive the means of grace through the Word preached and proclaimed and through the sacraments given, means of grace. God blesses us through these things and we are to be built up. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says, do not forsake the gathering together uh, so that you know, the idea of gathering together as a church is meant to be for the better. But Paul here says, when you guys do it, it's for the worse. You are, you are better, in other words, it's almost like he's saying you are better off not coming to church than you are coming to church. What a stinging rebuke that would be. Why? Why are they not better off coming to church? Well, he says, first of all, when you come together as a church, there's another clue that it's corporate worship. I hear there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. That was verse 18. So the reason why he is rebuking them, and the reason why he says it is almost better for you not to gather together, is because when you do gather together, I'm hearing there are divisions. Now you may be saying, Pastor, wait, I thought we already looked at divisions in the church. That was the first four chapters of this book. Right? Now I don't know how many lessons, 13, 14, 15 lessons it took us to get through those chapters. That's not what he's talking about. Those those divisions were sort of um, factional based on the pastors that have come through the Corinthian church. Paul started the church, but Apollos... We read this in the book of Acts. Apollos had come to Corinth and had stationed himself there. Peter apparently must have come through at some point uh, in his travels to the church there. So they had factions based on their favorite pastor, based on their favorite teacher. The factions that we see here that Paul is referring to here are not factions based on teachers, but more based on socioeconomic status. The rich and the poor, and the clue to that, as we'll get to it in verse 22, we'll see, it says, or do you shame those who have nothing? So, in other words, do you shame the poor? So what Paul is saying here is, look, when you gather together for a church, you have divisions, you have the rich hanging out, and you have the poor being left out in the cold, in a sense. And he says, you have divisions, and then he says, almost sarcastically here, and in part, I believe it. I hear there are divisions. You know what? I kind of sort of believe that there are. Now, he's saying that sarcastically because he knows this church. He knows there are divisions in this church. It doesn't surprise him that there are divisions in this church. He had spent three years with this church. He had come and gone several times. He's written, at least by this, by this time, this is his second letter that we have. And, and he's written a couple other times to this church. He has sent uh, his, his friends to this church. So he knows this church in and out, backward and forward. So it doesn't surprise him, he says, that there are divisions. I'm, in part, I believe it. Then verse 19, there must, For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved, those who are acceptable, may be recognized or manifest or evident among you. And that's the sad part. That's the sad truth that we see oftentimes is that when you see, sometimes it almost, oh, yeah, let me rephrase this. The sad part is this, that it often takes division, it often takes error, heresy, sin, whatever you want to call it, in order for those who are approved to be made manifest. You see where I'm getting at that? Let me give you an example of that. 
in the history of the church, particularly the first 400 years of the church, okay, you had several um, church councils out of which came several very important creed, creedal statements. The Apostles' Creed came out of this. The Nicene Creed came out of this. The, the um, Athanasian Creed came out of this. The Chalcedonian Creed came out of these, these periods of, uh, these early periods of church history. And oftentimes, the truth would be made manifest, right, would be recognized, as Paul would say here, in the face of error. So some kind of error would come up in the church, and then true believers would say, that's wrong, we need to denounce that, and in order to protect future generations, we need to state the truth so that it counters the falsehoods. The, the best example of that is the Council of Nicaea and the Arian heresy in the early church, if you know anything about that. And um, leading up to the Council of Nicaea, 325 A.D., uh, the Arian, Arian heresy was, was, being, was very popular. It was very popular. And the Arian heresy basically is that uh, Arius, the pr- propagator of this heresy, taught that Jesus was not divine, but that he was God's highest creation. He was his sort of, you know, the, his best creation. The, and, and he was, but he was not divine. So they denied the divinity of the Son, which is why the Nicene Creed makes it very clear that of the Son, that he is God of very God, very God of very God, light of light, so on and so forth, that he is equal in substance with the Father. But that error came up. And when people recognize, you know, you know you're, you're propagating this teaching, but it doesn't seem to correspond with what we know and in the, in, in the, what we've got revealed to us in the traditions, in the scriptures that they had at the time. So they, they finally got around to enacting a council, and the uh, Council of Nicaea condemned the Arian heresy, and the Nicene Creed was formulated as a response to it. And there you go. I mean, that's the idea. It's like sometimes you need the error in order for the truth to be recognized. That's what Paul is saying here. There must be factions among you that those who are approved, those who are acceptable, may be made manifest or recognized among you. Again, that's a sad reality when you're talking about a, a church with, filled with fallen people. But here he goes on in verse 20. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. There's the condemnation. Now here, let me again go through the, what it would be the practice back in the early church days. Keep your finger here, and let's flip over to the book of Acts chapter 2. The book of Acts, chapter 2. And we see a little bit, at least oftentimes people consider this sort of like a, what did the church do? You know, how did, what did they conduct? What did they do back in those days? Well, in Acts, chapter 2, this is after Peter's Pentecost sermon, after a great multitude come to faith in the Lord. And then in Acts, chapter 2, verse 42, we read, And they, the disciples and all those people there, Continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. So in a sense, what you have there, and many scholars and theologians kind of agree, is sort of a, a, an early 
directory public worship in a way of saying it. You know, we have in our own denomination a book called the, the Directory of Worship, and it tells us how we are to conduct worship. And here you've got it sort of like a bare-bones Directory of Public Worship, which tells you what they did, at least what they thought was important to do in the early church, and that is to continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. In other words, to continue to teach what the apostles taught. Now, they had the benefit of having the apostles with them. We have the further benefit of having the recorded Word of God in our hands, the apostolic teaching, the traditions, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2, that he, had, that he had delivered to them. So they continued in the teaching, the preaching of the Word, the teaching of the Word. It was a very Word-centric worship. Then also, in the break, in, in fellowship. So they would meet, not only to learn from the Word, but also to fellowship with one another. And then we see here the breaking of bread. Many people think of that as the Lord's Supper. And then the prayer. So they prayed. So... What the practice that we had then, that is at least believed to have occurred in the early churches, whenever the church gathered, they would have a time of teaching and preaching. The, the, the doctrine of the apostles would be expounded and explained and proclaimed to the people. Then they would gather for a fellowship meal. A fellowship meal in Jude uh, chapter 1, it's only one chapter, but in verse 12 of Jude, chapter 1, verse 12, the, uh, Jude calls it the love feast, the agape feast. So they would gather for a fellowship meal, and then oftentimes after that fellowship meal would lead to a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper. So Paul here is saying, look, when you come together in one place as a church, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. And go on to verse 21. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. So, Again, remember what we said. It wasn't the practice of the Lord's Supper that was in problem and was the problem. It was the love feast that was the problem. And what were they doing at the love feast? Well, you had the rich people coming, bringing their own suppers ahead of others. So when they met, now I've read some commentaries on this and. Essentially, what you might have had is a situation like this in a wealthy person's home. They might have had a dining room that could uh, you know, seat a fair number of people, but not maybe a, a group as large as the church in Corinth. So then you had like another outer room, and you had all the wealthy people kind of gathering together and eating their food, while the poor people are kind of out over here uh, eating with whatever they brought, and it was almost, almost never enough for them. So the rich people were sort of gorging themselves on their own food, and, and, and getting drunk on their own wine, while others are going hungry. So Paul is saying, look, and then, you, and then you gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper? Which is why he could say, look, whatever you're doing, you are not celebrating the Lord's Supper. Verse 20, whatever, when you come together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Why? Because you are, you are profaning the, the beauty of the Lord's Supper by your practice at the love feast. By, by not sharing in the meal with the poor people, by eating your own food and letting the poor people go hungry, you are not practicing the Christian fellowship that is necessary so that when you go into the Lord's Supper that you could, that you could celebrate it in a what we'll see later, probably at the rate I'm going, probably not this morning, uh, they are not celebrating the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. 
Now, we do this too, right? You know, we don't celebrate the Lord's Supper every week, but when we do, we'll, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper during our worship service, and then afterwards we will have a fellowship meal. Now, what they're doing would be sort of like similar, it would be like the same thing as saying like, if during the fellowship meal, I said, okay, everyone, I'm the pastor, I get to go first through the line. And then I grab like a couple of plates, and then I start loading up all the plates with all the food, and I, like, I sit at every station and just load up my plates and keep going, and then I sit down, I get like four or five plates, and I'm sitting here just chowing down on food, and then the next person comes through the line and it's like, goodness, what happened to the, the corn casserole? It's all gone. What? Wait, there's like only two meatballs in the crock pot, and all the macaroni salad is gone. That's kind of what was going on here in Corinth. So they were gorging themselves. They were, they were not sharing their food. So that leads Paul then to say in verse 22, look, don't you have your own houses to eat and drink in? You know, in other words, if you're going to go to church and celebrate the Lord's Supper and, and you're going to just like gorge your, why don't you at least stop at Runza or stop at Taco John or someplace, get a little bite to eat first, then go to the, the fellowship meal. That way you can at least share you know, or do you despise the church of God? That word there is to think lowly about. Do you despise the church that you would be willing to leave the poor people to go hungry just so you could feed your face? Do you shame the poor people, those who have nothing, so you could feed your face? That's what Paul is saying here. It's like, look, what shall I say to you? He is almost speechless. It's like, I can't believe you're doing this. What should I say? Should I praise you in this? Should I commend you for this? Should I pat you on the back? Should I give you a, a cookie and say, good little boy? No. I do not praise you in this. So Paul is like, okay, look. What you're doing is not celebrating the Lord's Supper, verse 20. So let me remind you what the Lord's Supper is all about as we look now at verses 23 through 26 at the institution of the Lord's Supper. Now Paul here says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. It's very similar to what he says earlier in chapter 11, verse 2, when he says, look, I praise you that you keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. And here he's saying, look, what I received, what I delivered to you is what I've received from the Lord. I am just the messenger. I am passing this on to you. This message is on to you. And it's, we, you know, what did he receive from the Lord? Well, many scholars believe that he received his gospel from the Lord. We see this in Galatians chapter 1. Um, I would say verse 12, but I'm going to read verse 11 as well. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 1, verse 11, But I make known to you, brethren, to the, church in, the churches in Galatia, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For, neither, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we know Paul's story, right? He was, he was converted on the road to Damascus, and then he was, uh, spent some time in the house of uh, Ananias, who had, healed, you know, who had uh, through the Holy Spirit, healed him of his blindness. And then he spent some time in Jerusalem and, and then in Antioch. And there was a period he talks about um, in verse 
one of chapter two after then and then after fourteen years, so he spent some time alone before he like entered into his public ministry. But it is believed that he received, in a sense, directly from the Lord his teaching. So here Paul is like, look, I, I pass this on to you. Now it's also possible he received the practice of the Lord's Supper from the apostles when he met with them. But point is, he is delivering to them something that he received from the Lord, whether directly from the Lord or through his representatives, the other apostles. And that is this, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We'll stop there for a moment. It's like, look, you need to be reminded of the practice or the institution of the Lord's Supper. And we do this. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I read the forms out of the Directory of Public Worship that give you the words of institution. It's a way of reminding us what precisely this meal is meant to represent. And it is a remembrance. He says it twice here, quoting the words of Jesus, more than likely out of the Gospel of Luke, since Luke was Paul, one of Paul's traveling companions. Do this in remembrance of me. Drink it in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper is a remembrance. Now, the Lord's Supper, of course, uh, supplants, if you will, the Passover meal because it was a Passover celebration that they were eating as they were celebrating the Passover before Jesus, who is the, the perfect Paschal Lamb, goes to the cross to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That sacrificial lamb that they sacrificed on Passover Uh, to remember what was uh, done during the practice and during Exodus, right? It was a remembrance of God's deliverance from bondage and slavery in Egypt. Just as that was, so now too, the Lord's Supper is a better remembrance, not of unleavened bread and bitter herbs, but of the broken body and shed blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for the salvation, the better salvation that He provides out of our bondage and slavery to sin. And just as Moses then took us and and took the people of Israel through the wilderness to the earthly promised land, Jesus now takes us through our earthly pilgrimage to the heavenly promised land, the new heavens and the new earth that await us at the end of the age. But this meal here is a meal that calls to remembrance the sacrifice of Jesus for us while we were his enemies. Romans 5.8, Christ died for us while we were enemies. Christ gave himself for us. Christ came down in the form of a servant. The one who was equal to God came down in the form of a servant, took on a human form, and submitted himself to the Father to the point of death on the cross. He came to serve us. He came to to be our representative. And this meal is a meal in which Jesus shows you, look, this was broken for you. My body was broken for you. 
This cup is, in the, is, the, is my blood in the, of the blood of the new covenant for you. We saw this earlier in um, 1 Corinthians 10 and when, 8, 9, and 10 when Paul says, look, you need to be thinking about others. Your, your liberty in Christian freedom is not to be exercised for your own benefit, but it's to be something for the benefit of others. And the same t- thing, too, with Christ. Right? Philippians, that great passage, the Carmen Christi, I just quoted part of it, where Jesus, or Paul says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, that mind which is uh, to, to think others more highly than yourselves. And, and Jesus is the perfect example of that, as he, he did not think of the glories of heaven as something to be grabbed onto jealously, but he willingly gave that up to come down into this world and to be a sacrifice for our, uh, for our sins. It was, this is a, a, a sacrificial meal. This is a meal in which Jesus talks about how he gave himself for us. And as we'll see in a moment, well, more than likely at this point next week, but as we'll see, this is, this is meant to transform. Paul talks about this, and then he'll go on to the discernment later, uh, but he, he brings this to their attention in order to say, look, how you are celebrating your agape feast has nothing at all to do with what the Lord's Supper is all about, which is a sacrificial meal in which Jesus talks about how he is going to go to the cross to have his body broken, to have his blood shed for us. Now, we mentioned this a little bit before, again in the previous section in chapter 10, when Paul talks about the Lord's Supper, comparing it to um, the pagan feasts at their temples, he, he, he brings this contrast up. It's like, look, when you take the Lord's Supper, it is a communion with the body and blood of Christ. So when you then go to the pagan temple and, and, and partake in their uh, religious ceremonies, you are communing or participating in the worship of demons, even though false gods are nothing, it's, it's, it's demon worship. But the point I want to bring your attention to is uh, turn back to chapter 10, verse, um, let's call it 14. Uh, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. That's the, the conclusion of chapters 8, 9, and 10. Uh, I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. Then he goes on in verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, and we say these words when we celebrate the Lord's Supper too. Is it not the communion, the koinonia, of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion or koinonia of the body of Christ? And again, that that idea there of communion, uh, the New King James has footnotes there, it talks about the fellowship or the sharing, some translations say the participation. So when you celebrate the Lord's Supper, you are participating, fellowshipping, sharing in the body and blood of Christ. And then he goes on in verse 17, For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. The idea of the Lord's Supper is that it's a shared communal meal that is meant for the edification of all the church. So when you celebrate your agape feast before 
the Lord's Supper and you don't share, then you are profaning the Lord's table. But just a few more words on this and then we'll, we'll call it good. Um, and again, we mentioned this in, uh, briefly last time too. This would have been about maybe four or five weeks ago. But here you have in verse 24 and verse 25, take, eat, this is my body. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And of course, Roman Catholics take that and say, see, the bread and the wine are the body and blood of Christ. And here we get to the differences between how different Christian traditions celebrate the Lord's Supper and what they mean by it. Now, the Roman Catholic Church believes in a doctrine called transubstantiation. Transubstantiation just means that the substance is, is transformed. The bread and the wine is transformed. It's a miracle. Transformed literally into the body and blood of Christ. So usually in the Catholic Church, when they say these words, these actual words, it is at that point, you may even hear a little bell ring, that it's at that point that the miracle of transubstantiation takes place and that wafer and the wine are are magically, miraculously transformed into the body and blood of Christ. Which is why oftentimes, if, if you have seen how it's, how it's practiced, people come up and, you know, if they give the wafer, they either may put it directly into your mouth or they may hold a little, uh, like a gold plate underneath in case it falls. Because if the, bo- if the body falls in the ground, that's, that's, you know, that's desecrating the body of Christ, Right? Same thing with the, with the cup. If you drink from the cup, and they always wipe it, so you can't have the blood of Christ touch the ground. That would desecrate the blood of Christ. It would be defaming that. Now, you know, we're going to look at it this morning in our uh, catechism study, but Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's, uh, Lord's Day 30, I believe it is, and question 80, speaks very strongly against this practice of the Roman Catholic um, way of celebrating communion calls it a, a, an accursed idolatry. Um, it calls it the Pope's Mass. Uh, of course, you know, we're talking people who are, you know, same generation as the Reformers. Um, but it is. It is an accursed idolatry because each and every week they, 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 in a sense, they sacrifice the body and blood of Christ. You have a priest. It's calling into mind all of the Old Testament way of doing things. Priests with, with bloody animals. Same thing with body and blood of Christ. We don't believe that. Our, our Lutheran brothers have a view very similar to the Roman Catholic Church, very different from the Reformed view. It's called consubstantiation. So what they'll say is that the, blood, or the, the bread and the wine still remain bread and wine, but somehow, because of how Jesus being divine is omnipresent, His body and blood are present somehow in, under, around, over the bread and the wine. And, and, and this is a, a very sad thing in church history that the Reformed could not get together on this. The Lutheran, those who follow Lutheran and the Reformers, uh, those who followed Zwingli and Calvin, um, they, had a, they had a meeting. It was called the Margsburg uh, colloquy and and they tried to see if they can get together and and try to merge the, what was happening in in Geneva and Switzerland and what was happening up in Germany and, and and also in the in the in the Netherlands and they couldn't get together over this issue 
In fact, the story goes that Martin Luther himself was, took off his shoe and was pounding the table, the pulpit, or whatever, saying, this is my body. The text says it. Therefore, it must mean it. Of course, the Reformed view is not the Anabaptist view, that it's just a mere memorial, but we believe, of course, that when you eat the bread and the wine, it is, as we saw in chapter 10, verse 16, it is a participation in the body of Christ. It is a participation in the blood of Christ. It is one that is participated in by faith. By faith, we are partaking of the body and blood of Christ as if it were literally the body and blood of Christ. But it is a, it is a spiritual presence, if you will. By faith. Right? Which is why I've been, you know, I've, I've been using this phrase a lot in the last few weeks. There is a, a sacramental union between the sign, the, body, you know, the bread and the wine, and the things signified, the body and blood of Christ. So just a little aside there. But now, let's just finish off this passage, and we'll call it good here. Verse 26. Uh, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. That's what makes this, the, the Lord's Supper so important, because the Lord's Supper is, as he says here, a proclamation... Of the Lord's death. In a sense, it's a proclamation of the gospel. The Lord's Supper, the sacraments, are picture or pictorial representations of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Baptism and the Lord's Supper picture the gospel. Now, we ought never celebrate baptism and the Lord's Supper separate from the proclamation of the word. They ought always to. Um, be associated with the proclamation of the word. We, must, we should strive never to divorce them from the proclamation of the word. But they are the gospel in picture form. As you take the bread, as you partake of the wine, you are proclaiming the Lord's death. Which is why Paul is so, uh, he's so uh, zealous here to make sure that what they are doing is actually celebrating the Lord's Supper. Which is why he says in verse 20, look, you're not celebrating the Lord's Supper because of the way you're conducting your agape feast. And if you're not celebrating the Lord's Supper, then guess what? You're not proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes. Your, your profanation of the Lord's Supper is in a sense sort of profaning the proclamation of the Lord's death. Which is why we have to be very important. We've got to be very careful how we conduct the Lord's Supper. Well, we'll stop here because uh, we're running way late on time here, and I don't want to rush through the next two points, uh, particularly these points on um, eating and drinking in an unworthy manner and examining yourself. So we'll stop here, and we'll pick up in verse 27, Lord willing, uh, next week.